It is with great joy that we begin this four-part Advent series with which we open what we are ambitiously yet humbly calling the ASA School of Theology and Prayer. Under the guidance of Mother Sarah Coakley, who has joined our leadership ministry team recently as assisting priest and resident or theologian in residence. So she would keep me theologically on my toes. No pressure. At any rate, um, the format, I, I believe you may know, she will offer a reflection and then there will be a time for questions and answers, a time for us communally to explore a particular topic. And then that format will be repeated for the four-part uh, series. Next week, uh, Mother Catherine Sonderager from the seminary will be here to offer a presentation. So thank you again for being here. Thank you, Dominique. Uh, what a joy it is to start this venture. And thank you, all of you, for turning out of bed at least an hour earlier than you might otherwise done on a rather dismal morning. Just a word about what I call the rules of the game in this series. Um, I think it's important for me to say all questions are open for discussion. You cannot shock me <laughs> any more than you could in the, con in the confessional box. Um, and autobiographically, I want you to know that uh, although I think I would now count as wholly orthodox, I don't mean H-O-L-Y, I mean W-H-O-L-L-Y, I have had very severe rational and historical doubts in my earlier life. In fact, that's what made me a theologian. And part of what we're going to be discussing today was what I struggled with very severely right through my doctoral work, actually. So not only is everything open for discussion, because we can't go anywhere in examining your faith without acknowledging what you've always wanted to say about what puzzles you, but you may also please interrupt at any moment, either because you can't hear, I hope that doesn't happen, or because there's something you want clarified. When we have these different sessions, there may be different ways that we do them. Sometimes there will be a dialogue between two people. Sometimes there will be a short input followed by a discussion, then another short input. Sometimes there will be a longer 15-minute lecture. Today it's going to be sort of hin und zurück, as the Germans say, um, in and out. Um, I want to put in a little flag, too, about the great opportunity that going deeper in theology is for growing in holiness, but not, in my view, without also, at the same time, deepening one's prayer life. These are like two necessarily correlated parts of our Christian life. And that's why we decided here that we would start a, a school of prayer as well as a school of theology at the same time. Um, and the first opportunity for some teaching and uh, practice on that will happen on December the 14th. As we go along, um, as I've said, do interject, but this session does have to end absolutely uh, immediately at 10.10 because the clergy have to prepare prayerfully for the 10.30 Mass. And it will almost certainly be the case that someone asks the most transcendentally brilliant question <laughs> at 10.09, and I shall be deeply tempted uh, to carry on, but I will be carried out by Father Dominique. <laughs> you also might like to know that each week there will be a handout like this, which will not only cover the questions that we're going to be looking at, um, but also give you key scriptural texts and 
sometimes key uh, patristic texts from the fathers to follow up if you're interested, sometimes um, Anglican classical texts as well. And then at the end, I will always give, or our visitors will always give, a few books that, if you're interested in going deeper, I can assure you are not too difficult for someone who has not got a theological degree. Um, and they are all um, available on Amazon. Um, so that's just something to keep by you. We're also hoping to edit the teaching part of these sessions and put them up online along with these handouts for people who don't always get to come to all of them. So that's all by way of preliminaries. Now, for these first four sessions in the School of Theology, we have chosen four topics which are, all of them, I think, challenging, puzzling, demanding. And all are associated with the season of Advent. Today, incarnation, one of the most fundamental tenets, or the most fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. Next week, divine judgment. The third week, repentance and confession. And the fourth week, hope, which we're much in need of. We will attempt to, as it were, unfurl some of the complexities and difficulties of these themes, which may make us a little uncomfortable, um, and if so, that's all to the good. It means that some kind of deepening is going on. So let's start with the obvious first question, what is incarnation? And this is not as straightforward to answer as you might think, because although Already, obviously, in the New Testament, there are lots of passages that you could call incarnational. They are about the story of God becoming man in Jesus Christ. All the stories of Christmas are about that. Most of our texts in Advent are actually not about that. They are about expectations of the Messiah out of the Old Testament, or they are about expectations of the second coming of Jesus at the so-called parousia, um, often as the Son of Man coming on the clouds. There are also in the New Testament texts like, for instance, uh, Mark 12, where you have a parable about a man who sends his servants to his vineyard, they get beaten up, then he sends his son, he gets killed. You could say from hindsight of the Christian story, that is also a kind of incarnational parable. But the more technical meaning of incarnation was not really clarified for some centuries within the Christian church. And it's that which we express in the creed we now call the Nicene Creed, but which is actually a creed uh, that was promulgated in 381 towards the end of the fourth century, but based on an earlier one at the first ecumenical council of Nicaea in 325. And these words will be familiar to you. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, very God of very God, who came down from heaven and was made man. Now, there's a lot of baggage there, and it was only, as it were, trawled over and clarified and agreed on over the first three to, the, to four centuries. So incarnation, in this technical sense, involves the idea that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Logos, the Word, has an eternal life alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit and is uh, not made, not a created being, but eternally begotten, a rather 
strange idea, you might say. That means there never was a time when the father did not have his eternally begotten son from all ages. And he wasn't, according to this view, divine in, the, in any lesser sense than the father is divine. We'll see why this becomes important in a moment. And then, remarkably, he came down from heaven and was made man in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. Notice that it doesn't say that God turned into a man. That would be a kind of transmogrification. That's often a misunderstanding. But that he came down from heaven and was made man in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is clearly a very extraordinary claim. And I want to spend most of the rest of the time today in our discussion asking why it's so difficult to believe. Because it is extremely difficult to believe, but it's also difficult to get clear in your mind what you're being asked to believe. So that's why I've started with this very extraordinary statement in the Nicene Creed. But before I go into all the difficulties and thoroughly befuddle you, I want to sort of skip to my last point, if you look over the page, page point four, because we wouldn't be bothering to do any of this if we didn't think this matter mattered, <laughs> if we didn't think it mattered supremely as Christians. And so the puzzle I want to leave with you at the end of today, which I'm not going to, as it were, pin down with a complete answer, um, because I think there are various ways of answering it. Why does the incarnation matter to you? Why is it life-changing? And how would I know if it was true? How would I, if asked by a Muslim or a secular agnostic or anyone else who wants to know what the core of my faith is, how do you know that's true? How would you answer? And I think that's a very, very interesting question, which obviously relates partly to scripture, partly to tradition, but partly also to our applying our reason and experience to this question. Those are all criteria of religious truth that Anglicans rightly utilize. And so under this four, I've said things like, Paul says in Romans 8, if there is incarnation, then there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is, there is nothing in this created world that God has abandoned or isn't familiar with in virtue of the incarnation. Or this wonderful phrase by Irenaeus of Lyon, the glory of God is the human fully alive. Or as the Latin poet Terence put it, I count nothing human alien from me. That is, I think, an implication of incarnation. There is no sphere of human life that isn't, as it were, shot through potentially with the glory of God. And most important of all, probably, is St. Athanasius's remark in his famous On the Incarnation that God became man in order that the human might be deified. Very important to understand what he meant by that. He did not mean that we turn into gods. What he meant was that in virtue of the incarnation, we are able to reclaim through baptism, through sanctification, the status of a healed, fully human person before God in Christ. 
we are rescued from sin through the activities of God, through this process called, in Greek, theosis. Later, Gregory of Nazianzus was to say that the reason why Christ has to be not only fully divine but also fully human is that the unassumed is the unhealed. If Christ does not touch every element of human life, you might ask, how does he do that, cosmologically? But if he does not, says Gregory of Nazianzus, if he's not fully human, if he's Batman or a zombie, then we are not transformed in him. We cannot be deified. But as we shall see in a moment, both the claim that Christ is divine in the same sense as the Father and the claim that he is fully human in the same sense that we human, even unto the point of suffering a human death, is the extraordinary combination of claims that are made in this doctrine. And I think that it's very worthwhile thinking, each of you, if I believe this, what is it that makes me believe this? Um, what, 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 as it were, gives me the sensibility that I can't do without this core thematic Christian belief? Um, as John Betjeman says in that wonderful poem on Christmas, and is it true, and is it true that God was man, man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine? Um, that's the existential question which each of you ought to have some kind of answer for if someone in a train asks you why you're a Christian. And it seems to me that we need to open up the criteria of confirmation wider than simply metaphysical speculation and historical and biblical investigation. Is there something about our lives which make us very sure that this is what we want to stake our life? <clears throat> Any questions so far? Because I'm then going to go into the thicket of these problems. Clarifications or? Shall I move on? Now, there is a cluster of early church reasons why this doctrine was highly contested. And there's a cluster of modern reasons why I think it has become particularly difficult to believe in the post-enlightenment period. And it was the latter ones that I stumbled on um, in my adolescence and, and 20s, until I realized I was slightly asking the wrong questions. But let's, let's go through the, the early church ones here. And this isn't, a, in, this isn't a consuming list. There might be more. But this is where things get puzzling, especially when you're attending to the scriptural text during Advent and Christmas. And this is that... The debate in the earliest years, at the very origin of Christianity, was not, was, was Jesus the second person of the Trinity? People hadn't even begun to think in that way. Or, let alone, was he God in the same sense as the Father? That took until, really, the early fourth century to be clarified in that sense. But it was an intra-Jewish debate about whether Jesus was the Messiah. That was a different question. That's the one we're going to be concerned with in Advent, scripturally. And if he was the Messiah, what sort of person was that going to be? Was that going to be a Davidic king? Was it going to be a warrior? Was it going to be a priest? What sort of person was it? There were a variety of messianic expectations within Judaism. That was the stone of stumbling initially 
for early Christians and their debaters because, first of all, this Messiah was crucified and there was certainly no vision of a Messiah that would involve that kind of humiliation. And secondly, this Messiah didn't continue his reign immediately in the second coming, hence the great crisis of the second coming not coming then. So what about other titles that were given to Jesus very early on? The Son of God was a very high title as well, a title that would suggest some kind of divinity, at least in a filial relationship. But that too, to be called a Son of God in Judaism was not absolutely without parallel. When the centurion of all people on the, at the cross in Mark's account says truly this was the Son of God, that is a remarkable uh, acclamation. It's already, you might say, pushing towards the idea of divinity, if perhaps subordinate divinity. As for the Son of Man, that was another very mysterious acclamation that you should probably read through the texts in Daniel 7 about an expected apocalyptic one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds. This again was part of the Jewish expectation of the period of Jesus himself. But I suspect that as the early church reflected on what they'd known of Jesus, none of these titles were really the key thing. The key thing was that they had experienced the resurrection. They had experienced the power of his presence, of, him, of his returning from the dead. And they also remembered what, what kind of miracles he had done and uh, how he had stilled the storm and healed many unhealed people. These were the things that I think made more significant impact on their reflection. Um, and so I'm going to leave it till nearer Easter for us to have a problematic discussion about how we set about believing in the resurrection. But I note here that this is intricately connected to the question of incarnation. <coughs> But if you look onto your second side of the sheet, you will see under key interconflicted scriptural passages that it's by no means clear that the earliest church believed unambiguously in Jesus's divinity early on, at least not in the same sense as the Father's divinity. This need not shock us, but it is to be taken into account when we become more sophisticated about how this belief grew so that maybe here in Acts 3.20 is the earliest Christology of all, as Bishop John Robinson once suggested, because in one of the early speeches of Acts, it seems that Peter is suggesting that Jesus is not going to become the Messiah until he comes again. He's not even the Messiah during his lifetime or in his crucifixion, that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, i.e. send him back. But in another uh, speech in Acts, it seems that uh, it's being stated that God has made Jesus Messiah through the resurrection, has adopted him as Messiah in the resurrection. You begin to see that if you read your New Testament with an eye for detail, the growth towards, as it were, high incarnational thinking is not immediately uh, before us. There are, as it were, attempts to reflect, ruminate on who on earth this person is. Where should we slot him in our range of possible titles that we have within the intra-Jewish milieu? Even Paul at the beginning of Romans, 
Romans 1, 3 to 4, in one of his opening statements, the gospel concerning his son declared to be son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. Again, he becomes son in his resurrection. So what we've got in the New Testament, especially in the earliest texts, such as uh, the Pauline texts, some of the earlier Pauline texts, some of the uh, early speeches in Acts, which are real attempts by Luke, the author, to recreate what the earliest preaching was like, is a kind of fumbling towards how to express the experience that the earliest Christians had gone through. Um, here is Paul citing a wonderful hymn in Philippians 2, which he probably inherited rather than himself composed. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself, being born in human likeness. Now, there's a great debate about how to interpret that text, um, because it doesn't necessarily mean that he was the second person of the Trinity coming down from heaven, because it could mean more Hebraically that he was made in the form of God like Adam, <laughs> and that he humbled himself further, as it were, by accepting the cross. However, where there are intimations of later incarnationalism in the high sense are in a set of what we can truly call cosmological passages in the New Testament. There are three in particular. The prologue to John that will be ringing in your ears, familiar to you all from Christmas morning. There is the opening of Colossians, which is a very similar reflection on um, uh, the cosmological significance and creative significance of Christ, and uh, the opening of Hebrews, another parallel passage, um, a son through whom he also created the worlds. So here, in these three passages, we do get the idea that whoever Jesus was, as it were, before his incarnation, he was already involved in the very creation of the world. But note that this is already also a Jewish idea, because in the period of 100 or so years before Jesus' appearance, there was much, uh, uh, as it were, mythological reflection on the idea of a figure who assisted God in making the world. The most famous is Sophia, wisdom, in, um, uh, in Proverbs 8. She is there, a feminine principle, helping God um, as a plaything and delight to him in the creation of the, of the world. And in philosoph Jewish philosophers such as Philo of Alexandria, who wrote at the same time of Jesus, we also get the idea of Yahweh having a word, a davar, a logos, who assists in creation. So we don't have to assume that these passages such as John 1, uh, uh, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1 are necessarily already affected by pagan philosophy, which also had an idea in Stoicism of the notion of a logos helping to make the world go round. This can be just intra-Jewish speculation. It comes as a surprise, I think, people now to think that Judaism had these other sort of quasi-hypostatic entities um, helping God in his work. 
but this was the rich reflection of the period of Jesus within Judaism. So it's not necessarily the case that Jews would have done a double take on hearing the um, Logos being described as uh, God and with God in John 1. Any questions about that? I'm going through this enormously fast. Yes? Sarah, was that influenced at all by Greek? Uh, Thought. Mythology? Yes. Because they were sort of godlike humans. Exactly, exactly. Now, this is an ongoing, very live debate uh, within <coughs> New Testament scholarship. For every, any passage in the New Testament, there will be 15 different views um, in the good rabbinical tradition of how to interpret a text. And uh, some people think that Jesus himself was strongly influenced by um, uh, cynic philosophy or stoic philosophy. Others think he was entirely enmeshed in, in Jewish thinking. So there's no one right answer here. I think what's interesting is that in this particular period, which is a very... Um, rich and creative and novel period for thinking, both in pagan philosophy and in Jewish thought, and they're coming together themselves. So Philo of Alexandria was heavily influenced by, by Plato um, and Middle Platonism. You get this sort of outflowing of reflections about intermediate principles, <laughs> uh, whether, whether in Stoicism called the logos prophoricos, the logos that goes forth, or in Philo, the word, or the wisdom, or the Shekinah, the presence of God. And in the Jewish context, this isn't seen as any way undermining monotheism. That's what's fascinating. We tend to think of Christians, we know how different we are from Jews, they're strict monotheists, and, and we have a trinity. But it's more complicated and interesting than that. And there are some Jewish scholars now who think that Judaism and Christianity didn't even really separate until the second century in their consciousness. Daniel Bioirin is the most famous along those lines. But pagan philosophy is also becoming very speculative about this idea. In Stoicism, the Logos could be called the principle of rationality that governs the cosmos. Um, and you can see how Christians in the second century, someone called Justin, who was a great apologist in Rome, came along and seized that Stoic idea and married it with John 1 and said, there we are, you know, we Christians have known this all along. So the marriage with Hellenism begins. Any other immediate questions here? I do, and is that better when I keep close to it? I'm so sorry. Thank you for telling me. I'm so sorry. It's such a delight to have a large crew. Keep, keep waving, Mariana, and I will. I get overexcited, and then I wander around. So um, let me speed through these other issues that were early Christian issues. Um, so I've already tried to indicate that the propulsion, if you like, to see it that way, uh, backwardly, towards the idea of incarnation in its full sense, was marked with lots of questions, debates, uh, uncertainties, and disputes about whether this idea could be contained within Judaism or, as it were, burst beyond it. 
So the next problem that confronts us is in the New Testament, is Jesus divine in the same sense as the Father? Now, this was a trick question that was going to divide the church. It divided it in the early 4th century when a very attractive presbyter in um, the docks of Alexandria, who had a big following of young men and women uh, called Arius, wrote sea shanties for them in which he expressed the view that Christ was at a lesser level of divinity from the Father. And he could find lots and lots of passages in the New Testament and the Old Testament support his view. Um, if you think about it, again, if you flip to the second page where I've put some uh, key passages in, um, John 14, 28, Jesus himself in the Gospel of John explicitly says, the Father is greater than I. Although by the end of the Gospel, Thomas, having demanded that he see his wounds, can say, my Lord and my God, straight out. Um, so that's a paradox for us within John. In Paul's great 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection, we are told that the Son will be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, i.e. the Father. So that also suggests some kind of at least functional subordination of the Son to the Father. And there are many other passages we could cite. It's not unambiguously clear in the New Testament that what the church was going to insist on at the Council of Nicaea in 325 that the Son was of one substance with the Father, which meant having all divine characteristics in common with the Father. All divine characteristics, all powers. The person who suggested using that phrase was the Emperor Constantine, who was fed up with people arguing. He said, how about this word, and blodged it into the creed. They then spent the next 50 years trying to decide what it actually meant which, if you think about it for one moment, and you're all very clever, was not obvious, because the same is a systematically ambiguous word or of one substance. But that's why we still have Aryans, whether they call themselves that or not. Nothing to do with Jewish Aryans, you know. This is spelled A-R-I-A-N. Um, because if you just naively read the Bible or non-naively read the Bible, there is a toehold for that view. Why then do you think that Athanasius, who was the great defender after the Council of Nicaea, insisted that the Son had to have all the characteristics, divine characteristics of the Father? Why do you think he would have argued that? Just testing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And it has to be nothing less than the fullness. Well, very, very well put. What he was arguing explicitly, and he had to do it ex post facto, because the Council of Nicaea was such a mess, frankly. But what he, what he argued was that unless the Son is fully divine in the same sense that the Father is divine, if he is at a secondary level or derivative level of divinity, he will not have that power of divinity completely to transform us, all right? 
This is the core argument at the heart of On the Incarnation. I commend to you that, that text with a lovely introduction by C.S. Lewis. I put it first on the list to read. Um, and bound in with this is indeed a whole spirituality that kind of argues backwards. What he's arguing is, if you have experienced in the church the fullness of life that transforms the way that you think about all aspects of, human, um, of the human condition, including those aspects that we are ashamed of, and finally fear as in death, if you have experienced in the church, through the sacraments, through encounter with Christ, what is actually saving you, then arguing backwards, it must be that this is nothing less than the same level of divinity that is in the Father. So for Athanasius, this argument was conclusive. You may not find that argument conclusive. Don't be ashamed if you don't. There are quite a lot of bits of the New Testament that don't argue that, but it is what we sign on to in the creeds, and it's core, therefore, to the faith. <coughs> yes? Often to the, fact, I mean, the whole Anglican argument in particular that the tradition of the church comes before the scriptures. Well, not before it. I'm, glad, oh, I'm so glad you've got to this. All right, so let's just step back. This is not on the sheet. Did but it's a presumed, and it shouldn't be. Um, this isn't often well taught, I think, in the Anglican Church. If you're an Anglican, do you know what the criteria are for theological truth? <laughs> well, this was expressed very clearly by Richard Hooker right at the beginning of the, um, right at the end of the English Reformation, deserves more attention than it normally gets. Because what he clarified after all those vicissitudes of the English Reformation, where we had first gone sort of Lutheran, then we had gone um, um, Bucerian, then we'd gone Catholic again, then we'd come back. So we tried everything. What he clarified was that this new church in England must, at all costs, because it is a Protestant church, commit to the primary authority of Scripture. But then what he argued was that that primary authority of scripture has to be mediated through the tradition. And not only that it has to be mediated through the tradition in such a way that, as an Anglican, you're not meant to junk the first seven ecumenical councils of the church, <laughs> including this one, the first one we've just been discussing. But this is, the key, this is what keeps me an Anglican. The genius of Hooker was that he said, reason has to interact in every generation in reflecting on that primacy of scripture and how it relates to that tradition. And even more interesting, he insisted, and this was extraordinarily novel, that reason itself is developmental. There are things we didn't know in the second century that we now know, you know, in early modernity. And our, this was quite different from the view of reason in Thomas Aquinas, for instance, which he knew very well, natural reason, which was deemed to be eternal. It's a good thing to be an Anglican because, <laughs> without being bombastic about it, we have this very, I think, splendid dance between these three authorities. And what Hooker also says is, therefore, uh, what tradition is, as it's constantly unfolded, 
is the rational saints of every generation enunciating the faith afresh. Right, that wasn't on my list for today, but I'm so glad it's, it's come up. We can argue about it later. Let me, let me, let me run, because it, it does distinguish us, not only from Roman Catholicism, but it distinguishes us from other forms of Protestantism in a very, very interesting and distinctive way. If Jesus is indeed divine in the same sense as the Father, and that what was at stake in the Arian controversy, the church then had to confront how on earth you could be both fully divine and fully and authentically human at the same time. And that really was a big thing to take on. Um, pretty much impossible for a Jew, very difficult within pagan philosophy. Um, and why, why necessary? Why, why do you think you need that? We discussed why Athanasius argued that Christ had to be fully divine and not somewhat divine, not a kind of demigod or an intermediary. Why does Christ have to be fully human? Yes, yeah, has to understand humanity from the inside. Though, of course, you could say God, of course, understands everything that he's created. Why fully human? Why not just somewhat human? Why not just sort of looking like a human? You know, a good imitation. Right, and to redeem them, and to redeem them. Hence this principle in Gregory of Nazianzus, the unassumed is the unhealed. If there were parts of humanity's experience that hadn't been touched and undergone <coughs> by Christ, they would be left out. No, exactly. Um, and by the way, that principle is still at stake in many contentious topics, not least the Roman Catholic rejection even of a discussion of the ordination of women <laughs> because it suggests that as it were woman's human nature is somehow not the same as man's human nature if if woman can't be in persona Christi symbolically at the altar but I didn't mean to make a slap in that direction today this principle also <laughs> was novel both within the context of the Hebrew scripture mm with the pagan Greeks, because encounters with a god in Greek was all, always fatal <laughs> yes. to the humans. Yeah. And likewise, uh, you know, when Moses went up on the mountain, he couldn't see. He it, could only see... In the cloud, the yes, exactly. As, and as the prologue to John says, no one has seen God at any time, sure. but we have seen his glory. So, so, so yes. Yes, 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 yeah. John Austin Baker, yeah, yeah. Um, so that becomes the next stone of stumbling. How exactly to express the absolute taking on of humanity by this person who is already a temporally divine? Um, and by the way, as I've already indicated, that story isn't completely over. Even though the seven ecumenical councils, the last three ecu or four ecumenical councils of the church came round on this several times, and there were disputes within the church how to express it, there are still details of the exact relationship of the humanity and the divinity in Christ that are not agreed upon within the church <clears throat> at large. 
it becomes highly speculative and fascinating. Let me jump, though, to the modern problems with the incarnation. And this is what sort of slayed me dead when I was 17. Um, I think there are at least three reasons, and actually there could be more, why believing the incarnation in the modern period is particularly difficult. One is called the scandal of particularity. Why would God choose to become incarnate in so specific, unique, and odd a place as first century Palestine? And what does that mean while we, now that we know that there are other worlds out there, other universes? What is this specificity? It seems so peculiar. Wouldn't he give us a bit more help by coming again? Why this uniqueness? Um, as the German philosopher, post-Hegelian philosopher David Friedrich Strauss put it, God is not wont to lavish his reality in only one place. Secondly, this is one on which a lot of people fall over and lie dead. And this is where I had a lot of misunderstandings myself. In the 19th century were developed highly sophisticated historical critical tools for trying to find out how much of the New Testament was actually went back to Jesus himself, how much could be established as actually having been said or done by him, and how much is later accretion. And there came to be, therefore, a strong critical presumption amongst liberals, especially in German, Germany originally, that uh, given that there is rather little that we can say with absolute certainty about Jesus on grounds of mere secular historical scholarship, it would seem unjustified then to add at the end, oh, and by the way, he's the second person of the Trinity. Now here, there is a great potential for areas of confusion. Warning spot. This is where I got stuck for a long time. Because that's why I asked you at the beginning, and you all look puzzled and your eyes crossed, that is, under what conditions would you regard it as vindicated or justified that you believed in this doctrine? A very puzzling and rich question. But if you set yourself a bar that's impossible, if you say, I've got to justify everything the church said in its creeds on the basis of historical critical scholarship, you're not going to get there. Because secular historical scholarship will not deliver the goods, all right? And if that really bothers you, it really bothers you. And it bothered me for a very long time before I realized that I was actually asking the wrong sort of question. I was asking a question that was inspired by a philosopher like John Locke, who said in the 18th century, you must be able to justify the claims you make, either on the basis of empirical evidences or on the basis of what is immediately and a priori obvious to you. But if you make those claims, if you make those um, high demands, you're almost certainly not going to get there. And I want you to think about whether that bothers you. It doesn't mean that historical scholarship about Jesus isn't interesting. It often turns up really fascinating conclusions which enliven our, our, our belief. And then finally, there's the problem of other religions. If you care about interfaith relations, especially with Muslims, um, or with any other great world religion that clearly does not accept the incarnational core doctrine of Christianity, 
Are you really going to say that you and you alone have the absolute presence of God in your faith and that there is no presence of revelation in the other religions? Um, I think that's an ongoing question for us. Again, there is no one right answer. It doesn't mean you have to choose between incarnation and nothing. It may mean that you have to think about the incarnation in a way that is indeed cosmological and does indeed allow other religions, as it were, in on the act in some way. Finally, I'd just like to add, before we have a quarter of an hour, ten minutes of discussion, that one of the great other problems in the modern period, therefore, when discussing whether the incarnation is true or not, is a confusion of three different kinds of ways of thinking, and I've named them at the top of the second page. Um, one is mythological thinking, which most unfortunately in modern parlance tends now to mean what is not true. But social anthropologists, you know, that's a myth. <laughs> um, that's fake news, right? But in social anthropology, you tend to meet a much richer notion of myth as a story that you live by and that is found to be profoundly true through our existential engagement with it. Some people live in the world of Harry Potter. Mother Patricia does. <laughs> uh, and, and some people live in the world of Star Wars. And some people live in the world of Christian uh, reflection and mythology which, by the way, I think can include Star Wars and Harry Potter quite nicely. But I don't think we need to dump myth. We need to understand what sort of something it's doing. Secondly, there's this problem of historical critical scholarship and how much can be established in that way. And there's a mistake created if you try and imagine in how you would justify the idea of Jesus of Nazareth sitting up in the sky before coming down. That's not what the doctrine of the incarnation says anyway. And then thirdly, there's this more precise level of thinking called metaphysical thinking, which you can see the creeds have already probed to. They, are, they have moved out of a realm of <laughs> more fluid and mythological thinking, and they are beginning to ask, well, what does that actually mean if I try and clarify it? Does it actually mean that this person is God's son in the same sense of divinity as the father? That's asking the sort of question that is not explicitly uh, propounded in the New Testament, but came to be propounded as the result of centuries of argument about what the New Testament meant. The great thing is not to make false choices between these three, but also not to ask the second one to do the work that the other two have to do. That was my mistake in my, in my junior life. I was too much a follower of John Locke. I got over that. <laughs> now, that's enough of me by far, and we have 10 minutes. So there's an awful lot here to go away and think about and maybe criticize, but ask me what you would like to ask me. Yes, Rex. Um, well, I think science can't give us the full explanation yep. any more than history. Yeah, good. And I think that's, that's kind of an important thing because that comes up a lot. A lot of people are very scientific in their, in their approach to it. Mm. Um, also, I, the, the, 
Incarnation has always been a problem for me as mm. well. Good. And good. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You know. <laughs> and I talked it over with a priest known to Mary. Okay? <laughs> and this priest explained to me that we, we, can't, we can't imprison God as one who's constrained by time, distance, and mortality, mm, mm. that we are imprisoned yeah. In, yeah. in this existence mm, that we have. Mm, mm. We tend to look at things, including God, as being comfortable. Mm. All right, that's not the case. And he explained that if you had your arms on a table and there was an insect between the two, that insect might not have the perspective to understand that this arm knows exactly what this one's going to be doing mm. and that they're controlled mm. by this mind. So mm. it's like the Father, Son, mm. Holy Spirit. In other words, you know, it, we're imprisoned by our existence here and we tend to project what our experiences are mm. to that realm. It so, may not be just a triune God. This God may have... I'll leave it that. that. That's extremely helpful because what Rex is pointing to is that when we do metaphysical thinking about God, we inevitably have to use creaturely terms. All right, so like sun, um, like wisdom, uh, whatever terms we give him. But we also have to think away from our creaturely expressions. Um, otherwise, we will be constraining God within the created realm. So this is a deep feature of all theological language. And I can't claim credit for that. Again, this priest is very <laughs> articulate about that. And I'm much more articulate than I've been. Yeah. Um, in the philosophy of Kant, there's an argument that's called a transcendental argument. Have you come across this idea? And the transcendental argument is an argument about what must be the case, even if I can't immediately see it, if I know certain other things to be the case. <laughs> Um, and if I know for sure that I have been saved and transformed in the life of the church, my reflection on the nature of God as incarnate may be that kind of argument, a kind of thinking back to what I can hypothesize about God, given what I already know. Um, and that's rather different from going and immersing oneself in all the rich pluriformity of scripture, which, you know, infuses our imagination um, and our lives towards Christ. But there's a different kind of undertaking from that severely ascetic, you might say, metaphysical undertaking. Yes, Mariana. I, I, this reminds me of uh, something that I thought was quite meaningful when I thought of it, and that is that Jesus as a fully human, was also aware of our perspective mm. that Rex just pointed yeah. out. Mm. And so when he's teaching us how to pray, for example, he says, our Father, yeah. that's something that we can relate exactly. to as limited yeah. human minds. Yeah. Yeah. Because we know a, re a relationship. And so I just think it's Jesus is another example of Jesus being fully human, that he knows how to speak to human Exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So his own mean of communication through teasing parables, for instance, or direct intimacy with his father, is our way in to this very difficult arena of 
what we sometimes need to express in more speculative and ascetic metaphysical language. Yes? So as a former atheist myself, I wanted to circle back to your atheist on a train who probably does believe that myth equals legend and yeah. cares about history and, and thinks that the Christian story is not historical. What would be your, what would you say first? What's your kind of opening right. evangelical? This happens all the time when I'm, I'm wise enough to step onto a train with one of these on. <laughs> um, so, I tactically, instead of coming head on um, at his metaphysical presumptions, because he will have some, if he's a, a sort of reductionist physicist, atheistical scientist, he will, have, he will have metaphysical presumptions. And one way I could get him below the belt would be to ask him to justify his metaphysical presumptions. But I would be more likely to come in the way of asking him about his experience of life. That's why I put down on point four what really, I think, ultimately sustains us uh, in our Christian faith. Of course, that's not a, knock a knockdown argument because you know he may have been abused as a child, he, he may have had appalling sufferings from which he hasn't been able to recover, and so on and so forth. But to find out first where he is is always the best place to start. Right? Would you agree? So the question is, where, where does the experiential and the existential and the apologetics, how do they fit together? And I think for each individual person with whom you're having a conversation, you have to tease out what would be the best way in. Um, but not to give up on the apologetics. I mean, I think most of us are not sufficiently able, especially in the Episcopal Church, to give an account of the hope that is in us and what that means for us and why it has completely <coughs> transformed our lives. If it hasn't transformed our lives, then the church is a club. I'm not interested in joining another club. I've got too many already. <laughs> I'm interested in the place where we are advancing <coughs> from glory to glory. <laughs> As you clearly are here, by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, there's one behind you, Missy, and then I'll complete okay. it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to um, uh, raise a challenge, I guess, related to the uh, scandal of particularity, mm. maybe with more postmodern, if you will, than yeah. the modern one, particularly um, this bit, uh, to the, uh, what is not assumed, is not healed. Mm. We discussed this in relation to the coordination of women's Catholic Church. But there was that question um, can a male savior um, save yep. a woman? Um, and so, what is your response to that? Okay. That's the question that gets asked at 10 past 10, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, I'm sorry, Missy. <laughs> Excellent. My, I, have, I have two answers to that. One is metaphysical, and that is, it all depends how you think of, in your speculative theology, what it is that Jesus assumes. Does he assume maleness, or does he assume humanity? And the way you think about that will be affected by what kind of philosophy you have. If you're a Platonist, it was very easy for Platonists to say, yes, he's assumed generic humanity, because the idea of a form of a generic humanity was easily available to them. Mostly today, they're not Platonists, which is makes it different. The other alternative is a bit a naughty way of turning the tables and saying, well, what if he had come as a woman? Then crucifying her would have been all too predictable. What we actually have is a man who did something extremely surprising. 
which was to accept suffering and transform. Um, so that's a short answer, a much longer one would take another hour. <laughs> this has been so wonderful, thank you very, very much.